Hi, everyone, and welcome to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark here at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve here at First Pres as the Scholar-in-Residence and Director of Biblical and Theological Studies, and I'll be your instructor for this series. This is Session 1, and in it, I'll touch upon a few basic questions about the Gospel of Mark. It'll help give us some footholds as we begin to turn to this wonderful gospel in the coming weeks. You can follow along, if you wish, on the Prezi slides that, I present, that are available on the internet. We'll first begin with the topic of authorship. When reading almost any book, whether biblical or non-biblical, one of the first questions that we naturally ask about the book is, who wrote it? Who is it by? And this question of authorship, I think, is important to us because we believe it gives us a clue, perhaps our first clue, to the meaning of the content in the book itself. Let me give you an example from outside of the biblical world. Here's a quote, and you can uh, test yourself to see if you know uh, who this quote is from. Here it is. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into an, into advance. Can you place this quote? Do you know who it's from? This is actually a quote from Franklin D. Roosevelt from his first inaugural address in January of 1933 at the heart of the Great depression. And knowing who the author is of this quote, and knowing that something of the social and economic and historical context in the early 1930s does indeed give us some insight to what these words would have meant to their original hearers. And the same might apply to our reading of biblical texts, and in particular to the Gospel of Mark. The question is, who is the author of this Gospel? Well, since the 2nd century CE, tradition has it that the author of this gospel is Mark, that is, John Mark, who was an early Jewish Christian who assisted with the 1st century missionary activities of Paul, Peter, and Barnabas. He is initially introduced in Acts 12.12 and is named at several other times in that book. We know that he's the cousin of Barnabas, but beyond that, precious little is known about this figure. The nature of his assistance that he provides on these early missionary journeys is also not specified, though we might deduce that he served as a recorder or a catechist or a travel attendant. We know that sometime later, there was a separation between Paul and Barnabas. There's some sort of conflict that seems to drive these two disciples apart. Later in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy 4.11, there's further reference to John Mark, and here in this case, there seems to be some reconciliation between he and the Apostle Paul. In either case, the tradition of the church, as it often tends to do, fills in the gaps about what we know about this ancient figure. Hippolytus, for instance, a 4th century thinker, describes Mark as being stump finger, that is having short fingers. And if you're following along in the uh, Prezi slides, you actually can see a picture, an ancient icon of uh, John Mark, where he actually has 
looks like two figures, fingers that are cut off. Now, why in the world would Mark be described by Hippolytus as stump-fingered? Well, of course, there's a possibility that Mark truly did have small hands or short fingers or had some sort of accident where he lost uh, some of his figure, fingers. This is, of course, possible, but it's not likely in my estimation. It's more likely that stump-fingered is a reference to the abbreviated nature of the gospel text produced by John Mark. As we'll see in a moment, when compared to the other New Testament gospels, Mark is quite brief, so perhaps in describing the author as stump-fingered, Hippolytus intends to point to uh, the stumpy nature of the gospel itself. Beyond Hippolytus, we have several early Christian traditions that suggest a close connection existed between the figure of John Mark and congregations in Alexandria, Egypt. And this is based on the belief that John Mark traveled to Egypt from Rome after the martyrdom of Peter. But again, these are mostly traditions, and we're hard-pressed to nail any of this down through concrete historical facts. One further connection that's of interest is the connection between the author of the Gospel of Mark, this John Mark figure, and a wonderful basilica that's uh, located in Venice. It's St. Mark's Basilica in Venice. It's at the eastern end of the Piazza San Marco, and it's a magnificent cathedral. It was built originally in the 11th century as a symbol of Venetian power and mouth. Wealth. It's marked by its opulent design and gold mosaics. In fact, there's over 85,000 square feet of mosaics. And just to give you a sense of how massive that is, 85,000 square feet is more than a football and a, a football and a, a 1.5 football fields is what I'm trying to say. Uh, of the various wonderful iconography that one encounters at St. Mark's Basilica, one repeatedly sees the figure of a winged lion. And this is an image that's associated with uh, John Mark, and in particular, the Gospel of Mark in early Christian iconography. And you might pause for a moment and think, why a winged lion? What does a winged lion have to do with the Gospel of Mark? Well, in all likelihood, the winged lion gestures towards the way in which the Gospel of Mark begins. And as we'll talk about this a little bit further in this first lesson, but if you recall, the Gospel of Mark does not begin with uh, a nativity scene or even a story about the annunciation of the coming birth of Jesus to Mary. Rather, the Gospel of Mark jumps right into action when Jesus is already an adult. And the first person we encounter in the Gospel of Mark is not, of course, Jesus or Mary or Joseph or Magi or shepherds or angels. Rather, we encounter John the Baptist. And he's there in the wilderness, uh, roaring as a lion, this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He's calling the people of Israel to turn back to God and to repent of their sins. And so, in early Christian tradition, this 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 uh, uh, this aggressive or, or uh, strident message of John the Baptist is symbolized in the picture of a lion who's roaring in the wilderness. And so this imagery of uh, a winged lion uh, as being a symbol of, of the Gospel of Mark has existed from very early on, and even the town of Venice, because of the presence of St. Mark's Basilica, has adopted the winged lion as the, the visual symbol or icon of the city itself. And if you ever travel to Venice, you'll see plenty of these winged lions all over the place, including on the official flag or seal of the city. 
Now, one final point here uh, before we move on on St. Mark's Basilica. You may be wondering, why is this particular basilica in Venice associated with Mark? After all, we don't know of Mark having ever traveled to Venice. Well, apparently, the story goes like this. Back in the Middle Ages, wealthy Venetian merchants stole relics associated with John Mark and that were originally housed in Alexandria. Remember, we have that other tradition where John Mark is associated with Alexandria, apparently because he traveled there after the martyrdom of Peter in Rome. But these wealthy Venetian merchants stole these relics, which were housed in Alexandria, and brought them back with them to Venice. And then they built this church basically as a shrine for these relics. Now, no doubt these relics are stolen property and might well be returned to Alexandria, but nevertheless, uh, in history, we have this wonderful basilica that begins, uh, that began as really as a shrine for relics stolen from the city of Alexandria. Okay, so all this is very interesting, but I must return to the original question. Where does authorship When it comes to the biblical book, and and when it comes to this gospel in particular, where do discussions of authorship actually get us? And here I want to offer three words of caution. First, in the gospel of Mark, an author is never named. Now, we do have superscriptions, that is, kind of little lines that that, uh, come at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark. We do have superscriptions in early Greek manuscripts of the Gospel that say in Greek, kata markon. That means literally, according to Mark. Uh, This is also true of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke and so forth. But we must remember that these superscriptions are not original to the biblical text themselves. That is, they they don't begin to appear in our manuscript evidence until somewhere in the middle of the second century CE, so almost a hundred years after the Gospel of Mark had been written. Church historians and scholars begin to add this title, uh, this superscription, to the gospel writings itself. In the writings of Arrhenius in the mid-2nd century, we already begin to find this. So why Mark? Why would you add Katamarkon uh, to this book if, in fact, we don't know for sure that Mark was the original writer? Well, it's in part because of the desire of the early church to have each gospel associated with an apostle. For Matthew and John, the association with apostles is quite easy because both Matthew and John are named apostles. But in the case of Mark, we might say it's apostleship by association. Mark is not named, John Mark is not named as an apostle anywhere in the New Testament. But we do know, or at least can surmise, that John Mark had a close connection and was a friend and interpreter of another another apostle, namely the apostle Peter. So it's apostleship by association when it comes to the gospel of Mark. So all of this is to say that we don't know for sure that John Mark was the author, but it certainly seems by the second century, this tradition is already firmly rooted. Now, my second word of caution is this. Even if we could know for sure that Mark wrote the gospel, we still must ask, is Mark of the gospel the same as the Mark named as John Mark in Acts and in various other places in the New Testament? And here, on this point, I can give you a very unequivocal maybe. Maybe. 
The problem is the name Mark is one of the most common names in the Roman Empire at this time. So certainly there's this tradition that Mark wrote the gospel, and we have a reference to a Mark in the scriptures. But again, because Mark is such a common name, it is just impossible to determine with any degree of certitude that the Mark referenced in Acts is in fact the Mark who wrote the gospel that bears that name. Now my final caveat or word of caution is this. As is the case in most other biblical materials, authorship is rarely the key to meaning. Books like the Psalms are meaningful and relevant as spiritual resources for us today, apart from knowing who actually wrote them. I think the same would be true of the book of Deuteronomy or Genesis or Exodus. These are spiritually meaningful texts that we can apply to our faith and practice today very, very well uh, and without any recourse to knowing exactly who wrote them. And I would want to say that the same is true of the Gospel of Mark. We can read this meaningfully without knowing for sure who the author is. And I would want to even suggest, to go back to where this conversation began, that something is also true of modern text. Even consider the quote from FDR that we began with. Those words uh, which we read, again, to read the quote again, So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That one line would be relevant and meaningful in today's 21st century context as much as it would have been in 1933. There is a certain timelessness of that phrase, and, and we can begin to interpret and interact with that idea about there being nothing to fear but fear itself in various different social and historical contexts. And I want to suggest then that knowing that FDR wrote that text is in fact helpful in terms of understanding its original context, but it's not necessarily determinative for how we interpret and apply and use that quote, perhaps in light of modern political and historical context. And I think much of the same is true about the Gospel of Mark, and for that matter, any other gospel in the New Testament. So that's it for in terms of, of authorship. Let me now move on more briefly to say five particular things, five features that are distinctive of the Gospel of Mark. We must remember here that all that we have this story of Jesus in the New Testament, not through one unified gospel account, but rather through four separate but distinct and unique gospel accounts. It's this fourfold nature of the gospel that very often informs how we interact with the story of Jesus. For many Christians, uh, and many pastors for that matter, we tend to take what we know about Jesus from all four gospels, and we tend to, to blend that information together. Um, I often refer to it as the gospel smoothie, and out comes this this very uniform story uh, that's really uh, a summation of what is said in all four different gospels. And that can be a very helpful way to interact with the story of Jesus, to kind of compile all of the gospels together as one harmonious account. But it can also be helpful to press that smoothie metaphor a little bit further, to, uh, to, to return to the original elements of the smoothie, to return to the original fruits, and to taste and see and savor what each individual goth- gospel writer said about Jesus. Because as it turns out, 
Mark's version of Jesus, Mark's understanding of who Jesus is and how he presents the story of Jesus and his teachings and his life and death and resurrection is not exactly the same as in the Gospel of Mark. I don't mean to imply that these stories are incompatible or are somehow unharmonious, but they're not exactly the same story. And so it can be helpful sometimes to step back and listen to the distinct voice of Mark and to begin to understand how his gospel is different than the other gospels, not only in terms of content, but also in terms of style and presentation. For when we begin to listen in to the distinctive voice of Mark, we begin to get a sense of the unique theological perspective that he has to offer. And so as we go through this whole series on the Gospel of Mark, I want to invite you to pretend as if, as hard as this would be, I want you to pretend as if you did not know anything about Jesus from the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Luke and Gospel of Matthew. Try to imagine that what you know about Jesus and what you know about the call to discipleship came only from the Gospel of Mark. What sort of vision of Jesus would we have? What sort of idea would we have about what it means to be a follower or a disciple of Christ? This is the little thought experiment that we're going to be doing throughout this series. And to get there, I want to give you five distinctive aspects of the Gospel of Mark. First, it's his writing style. By standards of Greek prose, Mark's writing is, by and large, unimpressive. It's choppy and unrefined. Often Luke and Matthew, when referring to similar stories that are found in Mark, they they actually polish up his stories. Uh, They're basically, Matthew and Luke are essentially good editors when it comes to working with Markan material and presenting it in fresh ways to their audience. As just one example, and here if you're following along in the Prezi slides, you can see this uh, on your screen, compare the story in Mark and Luke where Jesus is beginning to teach from a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Here's Mark's version, how it begins. And he began to teach beside the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered around him that he got into a boat on the sea and sat there. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he began to teach them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, and then the story continues. So you can tell it's very choppy. There's a lot of ands. The action is abrupt. There's not a lot of uh, flowery language or or, uh, the prose is is straightforward, but but there's nothing fancy about it. Listen now to Luke's version of the same story. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. If you're listening carefully or if you're looking at, this, uh, at the comparison of these two texts, there's a lot that stands out. Uh, Mark's version is filled with ands. There's six of them in this short little passage. It feels kind of like a first grader telling a story about what she did that day. And then I went to school, and then I had snack, and then I had recess, and then I had art class. It's just this very choppy way of telling a story. Luke rally, rather has this very uh, polished way, these complex sentence structures uh, that really frame the narrative in a very different way. Mark's story also is, is very much lacking in detail. For instance, we don't know whose boat it is and why it was empty in the first place. And Luke, in telling the story, answers both of those questions. Luke tells us, well, it's Simon's boat, and the reason it's empty is that the fishermen were out cleaning their nets. So Luke fills in some of the details that Mark leaves unexplained.
Now, this kind of unrefined grammar that we find in the Gospel of Mark might be grounds to dismiss this gospel as a more unrefined or, or even a less distinct gospel. And in fact, throughout the history of the church, this has been the case. The first commentary we have on the Gospel of Mark doesn't come about until the 6th century, and the second commentary on this gospel doesn't arise until the 9th century. All along, much more energy was spent on the Gospel of Luke and Matthew and John. But I would argue that there's something important theologically in Mark's simplistic prose and style. I believe theologically that the gospel has meant to be accessible to all, and as a result, its language must be simple. Its language must be straightforward. You shouldn't have to need a college education, let alone a master's degree or a PhD, to understand what the gospels are saying about Jesus. They're really meant for the common person to understand. Uh, Actually, this is true of all of the gospels in a certain sense. The Greek that's used in the New Testament is one that's known as Koine Greek, and that word Koine means uh, common. Or, or, or may understand it as regular Greek. It's not the high Greek or the Attic Greek that we know from great Greek literature like uh, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. So all of this is to underscore that the unpolished nature of Mark's gospel might be part of its theological gift to us insofar as Mark's gospel, his language to an ancient reader of Greek, would have felt very accessible. And that's the point of the gospels, that it's meant for all of us, not just for the educated. Now, the second distinctive feature to highlight about Mark's gospel is its pace and plot structure, both of which are also distinctive. In comparison to other gospels, the pace of Mark is frenetic. Jesus is always on the move. The plot is always pressing forward. If you can imagine the gospel of Mark as like a Hollywood cinema film, the camera is always changing focus. This technique um, in film studies is called rapid cutting from scene to scene. It's very, very characteristic of most modern TV shows and film. And there it is also in the gospel of Mark. Jesus is always on the move and Mark is always changing focus. And this is really clear uh, from the fact that one of Mark's favorite words in Greek is euthis, and that word means immediately. Mark uses it all, all the time to help refocus our attention as readers. Here are a couple examples. And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, Mark 1.12. And immediately they left their nets and followed him, Mark 1.18. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean, Mark 1.42. If you keep reading the gospel, even in English, look out for that word immediately, immediately. Uh, Things are always happening rapid pace uh, in Mark's gospel. Again, uh, this might feel repetitious or a little bit clumsy in terms of a literary style, but I would want to I would want to caution against this uh, once again. This is actually a very common way of Greco-Roman storytelling. So what Mark is doing here in immediately Uh, moving us from scene to scene is nothing altogether unique or clumsy. And in fact, I think immediately functions as something as a visual aid or a signpost to the reader. It helps grab our attention. It prevents us from drifting off in the story and losing our place. Every time we hear immediately and read it, it refocuses our attention. So really, I think it's actually quite clever as a storytelling technique, and we might see it as a virtue of the Gospel of Mark and not, in fact, as a vice. Now, in terms of the, uh, the plot structure, structure, Mark's gospel is also very basic. 
Mark's gospel, as I alluded to earlier, is the shortest gospel of the four by far. It's 16 chapters long, that's 678 verses and 11,304 words, if you're keeping track at home. In comparison to Matthew, uh, which is 28 chapters, 1,071 verses, and over 18,000 words. So, to do the math, Mark is only 62% of the length of Matthew. It's widely agreed in scholarly circles that Matthew and Luke knew of Mark's gospel. That is, they had it before them, and they systematically expanded his gospels, adding in additional stories, often in the form of long sermons, parables, or teaching segments. In fact, you might think about Um, how the Gospel of Mark kind of provides a basic outline, or scholars talk about the Markan spline, uh, upon which Luke and Matthew build out their much longer and more elaborate plot lines, uh, based off of the basic story in the Gospel of Mark. Now, again, I want to argue for, uh, for a certain theological purposefulness in the shortness of Mark's gospel. And I think this is especially clear uh, in the case of the abrupt beginning of Mark's gospel. As I already mentioned, Mark's gospel does not begin with an enunciation of the coming birth of Jesus to Mary. There is no nativity scene. Uh, the wise men do not come on the scene. We have no star. We have no angels. We have no shepherds. Rather, we jump right in to the story of John the Baptist. And those opening words of the Gospel of Mark, uh, in the beginning, or the beginning of, I should say, the beginning of the good news, uh, echoes, I think very intentionally, the opening words of the Bible itself, going back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. The Jesus story, in Mark's perspective, is meant to be heard as parallel to and an extension of the creation story. The ministry of Jesus, the announcement of the gospel, the call to repent and believe, is theologically speaking into existence a new creation. It's inviting the reader into this new act of God to bring about the redemption and restoration of the world. In this sense, God's first words of creation, let there be light, and so forth, ultimately lead to Jesus' Jesus's first words of ministry, repent and believe. So while in one angle it might seem like Mark has something of an abrupt or stumpy beginning, really I think there's a lot of theological meaning packed into the way he begins his gospel. Mark is drawing us to this connection, back to Genesis 1, and is inviting the reader to think through in what ways the beginning of Jesus's ministry, which we get through the witness of John the Baptist, and what ways this intentionally mirrors and echoes the beginning work of God in the creation account of Genesis 1. For just as Genesis, let there be, is the absolute beginning of creation, so too is Jesus' repent and believe, the absolute beginning of belief and discipleship. So that's the second distinctive feature of the Gospel of Mark. The third distinctive feature of the Gospel of Mark is his use of irony. Now, as a brief kind of uh, maybe middle school or high school uh, English class review, what is irony? Well, irony basically is a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects. Mark uses irony in a really creative way in a number of circumstances, but I'll highlight just one of them, and it has to do with the issue of Jesus's identity. 
From the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus's identity is revealed to the reader. In fact, in that very first line, we find out that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark doesn't bury the lead here. He tells us outright who this Jesus figure is. And then just a few verses later, in case you missed it, the same identity is revealed at Jesus's baptism. When he emerges from the water, we hear a voice calling from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So you don't have to read much past the first half chapter of the gospel to know the punchline of the story. This Jesus is truly the Son of God, God's beloved, with whom he is well pleased. It couldn't be more clear to the reader. There's no mystery here at all. But the great irony then throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus's identity is constantly a mystery to people who follow him. And it's especially a mystery to the disciples. There's that story, for instance, uh, where uh, Jesus calms a windstorm out on the Sea of Galilee. He's out on the boat with his disciples. He calms the wind and the disciples say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the reader knows exactly who this is. This is the Son of God, God's beloved, but the disciples don't get it. To them, it's a mystery. So one layer of the irony here is that while the disciples wonder who this Jesus is, the reader already knows. But there's actually another layer to this irony. It is, and here it is, it's that in the Gospel of Mark, there are other people who recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's not who you expect. It's often demons and unclean spirits uh, that actually get who this Jesus is. For instance, from Mark 3.11, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. And then in 5.7, and he shouted at the top of his voice, this is the uh, Gerasene demoniac, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Um, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And then finally, at the very end of the gospel, uh, in, after Jesus has died, it's Mark fifteen thirty nine. a Roman centurion looks on, and here's what we learn. Now, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was God's son. So, what's going on here? Well, I think what we have is Mark playing with categories of insider and outsider. Those very people who should know who this Jesus is, the disciples, always uh, can't get it right. For them, Jesus is a mystery. And to those on the outside, the demons, the unclean spirits, the Roman centurions, they're the ones who truly understand who this Jesus is. So this presses the reader then to wonder, Uh, Where do we think true knowledge of Jesus resides? Who possesses that knowledge? Well, Mark's gospel is intended to rewire our understanding about insiders and outsiders and who knows what. So let's keep an eye on this. We'll come back to that theme uh, in later lessons in this series. The fourth distinct feature of the gospel of Mark are, is what I call boundary crossings. Throughout the gospel of Mark, Jesus is always willing to have contact with outsiders, whether lepers or tax collectors or sinners or women or the destitute or the ill, Jesus is always willing to transgress boundaries, boundaries set by ideas about holiness and purity from the Old Testament. Uh, These at best were intended to create a people set apart for God for service to others, but one of the unintended consequences of these boundaries uh, between holy and unholy, impure and impure, is that they become a divisive tool that separates 
people based on class and social location. Now, I want to stress that this was not their original intention, so we should not read that negatively into the Old Testament, but, but they had this unintended consequence. And the, the, the Jesus that Mark presents us is always willing to cross those boundaries, to, to transgress lines between purity and impurity and holy and unholy. It's symbolized most clearly, uh, I think, in fact, in who Jesus decides to eat dinner with, to dine with. Uh, There's a wonderful image, if you're following along in the Prezi slides, um, from a German painter named Sieger Koder, uh, who was a World War II survivor. And he gives us this picture of Jesus uh, at a table, a crowded table. And you can see Jesus's hands breaking bread and distributing wine. And he's around this crowded table with really what seems to be a, a diverse crew of people. There are men and women that the skin tones differ, uh, their clothing differs, which suggests different maybe economic levels or social locations. Um, I think it's a wonderful image of kind of the diversity of the table that we find in the Gospel of Mark. I think it really contrasts uh, in a really important way with that traditional image of the Lord's Supper that we have um, uh, from Michelangelo. You know that classic theme, uh, scene where Jesus is at table with his uh, 12 male disciples. There's some debate about whether Mary is there, uh, but nevertheless, there, there's, there's 12 male disciples, and they all look about the same in terms of skin color and dress. And I want to suggest that the other image, the image by... Um, a, a cedar coder is actually a better representation of what Jesus's table and community looks like in the Gospel of Mark. He's always willing to transgress boundaries, to sit down with outsiders, and to form relationships across social, culture, cultural, and even religious boundaries. That's the sort of Jesus that Mark gives us. Now, fifth and finally, as we wrap up, The last distinctive feature that I'll highlight about the Gospel of Mark is what I call the failure of the disciples. As in other Gospels, in Mark, Jesus calls people to leave behind families and jobs to come and follow him. And they do, and they listen, and they follow him. And in all the Gospels, the disciples are not perfect. They fail to understand certain aspects of Jesus' ministry. They sometimes doubt and despair. They are definitely a work in progress in all four Gospels. But in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are especially prone to failure. And I'll just give you two very brief examples. In one story, Jesus' disciples are on a boat and a storm kicks up, and they are worried that they are going to sink. And and we find this story both in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, but with with some important differences. I'll begin with Mark 4, 38 to 40, which again, you can find on your Prezi slides. The disciples woke uh, him up. Jesus had been sleeping in the back of the boat. The disciples woke him up and said to him, "'Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?' Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Listen then to the parallel story in the Gospel of Mark, which comes from eight twenty-five to 26. And the disciples went to him and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. So in both cases, the disciples know that they're in a, in a bad position and they're desperate to get Jesus' help. But think about how Mark presents the question of the disciples. In Mark, the disciples say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Whereas in Matthew, their approach to Jesus is much more pious and refined. They say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. So they make a request. They don't place a blame on Jesus. 
And so in both cases, Jesus stills uh, the sea and the wind and so forth, and disciples are saved. And in the end, Jesus says to the disciples in the, in the Mathian, uh, Mathian version, why are you afraid? So he says the same thing in Mark, why are you afraid? But then instead of saying, have you still no faith? Jesus in Matthew's version says, you of little faith. Now, in both cases, there's a failure of the disciples, but in the case of Matthew, Matthew softens that failure. There's some difference between being of little faith and being of no faith. Now, here's another example um, about how the disciples tend to be focused on the wrong things. There's a great story in, in Mark 10, which we'll eventually get to in this series, where the brothers James and John come to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do something for us. Do whatever we ask of you. And then picking up in 1036, Jesus says to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And their response is telling. In verse 1037, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. They're asking these disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're asking for greatness. They still misunderstand what this kingdom of Jesus is all about, this kingdom of God. They're understanding it in terms of positions of power and prestige and sitting on Jesus's left or right hand. And Jesus gets this and he says in response to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or will you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He's trying to help them uh, subtly uh, understand what it really means to be a disciple of Christ. It's not positions of power and prestige, but it's a willingness to walk in Jesus's footsteps, even if that means to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Now, the same story does appear in the Gospel of Matthew, and James and John also don't come across as looking very good in that story. They also misunderstand the nature of the kingdom of God, but, but Matthew softens, uh, softens the blow, if you will. It's the same scenario, but instead of having James and John ask for these positions of power and prestige directly, rather, Matthew has their mom intervene for them. It's the mom of James and John who asks for positions of power and prestige for their sons. So there's definitely still misunderstanding, but Matthew, there's some sympathy here, because what what mother wouldn't want the best for her sons and wouldn't want to advocate for her sons? So maybe it's the mother's misunderstanding. Maybe she takes part of the blame in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Matthew. But the result is that these two disciples, these important disciples, end up not looking quite so bad in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew as they do in the Gospel of Mark. This failure of the disciples is a prominent theme that we're going to continue to come back to time and time again throughout this series on the Gospel of Mark. So there we have it, uh, some brief reflections on authorship of Mark and then five distinctive features that sets Mark's voice apart from the voice of other Gospel writers. What lies ahead of us then is to begin to turn to the, to the story that Mark offers us itself and to begin to think through what sort of image of Jesus does Mark give us and what sort of vision of discipleship do we find in these pages. It's to those topics that we'll turn in future lessons. Thank you.